Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Amanda Machaka, Tabisa Lohoko, and Fili Limwati. In our top stories, in Africa Rise and Shine with Nasawa, Zambia's opposition leader released on bail. And South Africa's President Jacob Zuma to host his Namibian counterpart, Haig Gengob. In economics news, Zimbabwe to amend black empowerment laws. And in sports news, a Springbok coach reshuffles his team for Saturday's test match against the All Blacks. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. Good morning. The prosecutor of the International Criminal Court says it would be sad to see Africa pull out of the body. Some countries in Africa have been threatening to withdraw from the ICC, which they are accusing of targeting the continent. In an interview with the SABC, prosecutor Fatou Bensouda gave an update on cases before the court. There are Belgians that, are, that have been uh, that are amongst the ranks, Canadians. We had even even the Dutch Netherlands. We had that they have their nationals who are joining the ranks. These are state parties, the, the ones I've mentioned. And if their nationals are amongst the ranks of ISIS, we will have jurisdiction over those nationals. South Africa's outgoing public protector Tulima Donsela will provide President Jacob Zuma with a set of questions to answer following her investigation into so-called state capture by the wealthy Gupta family. Madonsela has confirmed that she met with President Zuma in Pretoria on Thursday. It is alleged that the family was involved in the dismissal and appointment of cabinet ministers. Marisa Simons has more. Maroncela's office says the meeting was dominated by arguments for the deferral of the investigation to Maroncela's successor, Busisiwe Makwebane. This was on the grounds that the president did not have enough time to prepare. President Zuma's legal team and Maroncela agreed that the president would answer a set of questions through an affidavit. He will then meet Maroncela again to clarify issues. Maroncela will leave office next Saturday. Rwandan President Paul Kagame has crept off two key ministries from his cabinet. Wednesday's cabinet reshuffle saw internal security minister Mustafa Zul Harerimana and that of the East African Community Affairs lose their seats. Three more ministers lost their seats with others given new portfolios. Silvanus Karamero reports. The new arrangement saw the creation of two new portfolios. State Minister for Constitutional and Legal Affairs in the Ministry of Justice and the State Minister for Socio-Economic Affairs and Development in the Ministry of Local Government. In addition, the East African Community Affairs docket has also been scrapped off as an independent ministry. The 30-member cabinet includes 11 women representing 36% of it. Doctors at Sudanese government hospitals have held a nationwide strike to demand better facilities, higher wages and protection from security forces. The Federal Committee of Doctors said medics at government hospitals were handling only emergency cases following the launch of the strike action. 
Thursday's action was in protest at low wages, deteriorating services and a rise in attacks on doctors by both the security forces and relatives of patients. In recent weeks, Sudanese media have reported several attacks on doctors by policemen or angry relatives of patients. The failings of the public health system have led to a boom in the private sector, which now counts more than 1,400 hospitals nationwide. And finally, more than 3 million people on the U.S. south coast are to be evacuated as Hurricane Matthew slams into Florida. The storm, which has killed more than 100 people in Haiti alone, also devastated parts of Cuba and the Bahamas. President Barack Obama has declared a federal state of emergency in Florida. Highways in the state and in neighboring Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina are clogged up as thousands of people make their way inland to escape the category four storm channel africa news africa rise and shine africa Zorza. africa amuka na unai To Namibia now, where Opposition United Party for National Development UPND President Hakainde Hichelema and Vice President Jeffrey Mwamba have been arrested. The two were arrested on Wednesday on the grounds that they blocked roads when they visited UPND members incarcerated at Kamfinsa Prison last week. The arrest has resulted in law enforcement fighting, running battles with unhappy UPND supporters. More on this report from Hilda Akekela. The two leaders were summoned by police for interrogation following a complaint from one of the district commissioners on the Copper Belt that Mr. Hichelema and Mr. Mwamba were holding a meeting in his district without a permit. I spoke to Copper Belt Commissioner of Police Charity Katanga on the charges slapped on the two leaders. The charges are unlawful and seditious. I don't know if you are able to elaborate on those uh, charges. On 26 September 2016, between 16 and 17 hours, they held an illegal uh, meeting where they addressed in Pongo residence without the police notification as required by the Public Order Act, contrary to Section 75 as well as 74 of the Penal Court. During the same meeting, they uttered uh, seditious uh, words against the government of the Republic of Zambia and the government of President Edgar Chagualungo. They mentioned about inciting their words when we are inciting the public and showing contact against the, the government of the Republic of Zambia. Some online uh, reports are saying they've been denied uh, food and water. Is that true? But these people wanted to be sleeping on mattresses there. The same which is not accorded to anyone in the cells. And as law enforcement, there's no special treatment of persons in detention, which should be differential or preferential, or are supposed to be treated properly. So there are no mattresses in the cells and they, they wanted to bring mattresses in the cells. As of food, they had access to food and other things that were required. In a communique 
to his party members. Hakainde Hichilema said they had gone to the Copper Belt to visit members of his party who are incarcerated at the Kamfinsa Correctional Facility. Despite having had clearance from headquarters in Lusaka, they were denied the visit. Instead, they decided to visit the families of their members. On their way, they stopped to buy vegetables and greet some marketeers. And to that, Foundation for Democratic Process Executive Director Chimfue Mbemwenge says there is no offense in one, especially an opposition leader, to stop by and greet people. The right to freedom of association, the right to freedom of speech, cannot be relegated to that piece of legislation called the Public Order Act. Because from what we are seeing, it's very easy to, by the police, to take away that right to freedom of speech, I mean, that right to freedom of association. And uh, certainly what we are saying is that the environment in which we are, as a, de- a democratic nation, multi-party nation, uh, a constitutional rule, we should not allow a situation where freedom to association becomes a license. It should be licensed. It shouldn't be the case. The right to meet people, to share ideas, particularly by political parties, is very cardinal. In 2001, when President Michael Sata lost the election, he had to go around the country to thank his people and so on and so forth. But we, I mean, these things have taken on a different turn of events, which is very unfortunate for the democracy that, you know, we are trying to grow. So for us, we, we, we acknowledge, yes, laws are there to be respected and so on, but surely those laws should not be, should not override the Constitution. It should not override the freedoms that political actors have, the freedoms that every Zambian ought to enjoy. In another communication, HH, as is fondly referred to, said together with his vice president, they spent the night in the police holding cells. But their spirits are not broken. Honorable Jack Mwimbo, a lawyer and head of the opposition in parliament, says the harassment is unwarranted. Well, it's something that is very depressing. We have not been anticipating that uh, as Zambia we will reach this level of uh, failing to uphold the basic uh, human rights. We have been hearing such things happening in other countries, not in Zambia. We are extremely disappointed. We are spirited. We hope that uh, we achieve what we want to do. We are just waiting for them to take the matter to court. It's important to note that uh, this is the offense they have been charged with is a, a bailable offense. And even when you are found with a case and the court convicts you, you the court can give you a fine. That is, you know, what the court can do. So it's not something which, you know, you can punish people by, you know, uh, holding them in very unsanitary conditions. So they say police had to use tear gas canisters to displace UPND supporters who had gone to offer support to their leaders. Similar incidences from other parts of the country are being controlled by the armed personnel, while the opposition is urging its members to stay calm as their reaction will be used to impose a state of emergency. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekelwa in Zambia. The International Criminal Court's chief prosecutor says it will be a sad day in Africa if Africa pulls out of the body.
This comes at a time when some countries on the continent have called on others to withdraw from the ICC because they accuse it of targeting the continent. Speaking to the SABC, Fatou Ben Souda also gave an update on the cases before the court. Charged with the responsibility of ensuring that justice is done, but the prosecutor has been criticized on allegations that the ICC is targeting the continent. What the International Community was completely resolute about is that we can no longer have impunity for crimes that shock the conscience of humanity. This was the thinking. It was not a political decision for them to do that. It was to ensure that there is justice whenever these serious crimes, these serious atrocities are are committed. On the recent pockets of conflicts around the world, she said her office is looking into some of those reported cases. There are Belgians that are are amongst the ranks, the UK nationals. Canadians, we had even even the Dutch Netherlands, we had that they have their nationals who are joining the ranks. These are state parties, the, the ones I've mentioned. And if their nationals are amongst the ranks of ISIS, we will have jurisdiction over those nationals. A plea to African leaders. As an African, it would really be uh, a regression on the continent a regression, a very bad regression for us to decide to choose impunity over justice because this is exactly what what it means, that we are choosing impunity for serious crimes over justice and this will be unfortunate for the continent. The court will continue to be in the spotlight as more conflicts are reported. Sophie Mugwena, SABC News, Johannesburg. South Africa has announced it's ready to undergo a second review process as part of the African Peer Review Mechanism, or APRM. It comes on after other countries of the continent agree to do the same. The APRM is a self-monitoring instrument of government performance designed to ensure Africa develops its own reliable ratings agency. Koleta Wanjohi sent us this report from Addis Ababa. The African peer review mechanism is the brainchild of the African Union. It is a voluntary self-monitoring mechanism that has been in place since 2003. It gives African countries the chance to carry out a personal review of their political, economic and corporate governance values. The new chief executive officer of the mechanism, Professor Eddie Maloka, has developed a five-year strategy to get all African states to accept the review. APRM has to be the global benchmark for governance in Africa. So it should not be external agencies coming to, to uh, measure governance or to comment or to lead on governance issues. It should be the APRM that is the continental benchmark that is led and owned by Africans. And that's really what we want to achieve. Professor Eddie Maloka says Kenya's president Uhuru Kenyatta has just signed an instrument approving a second self-national review mission to begin in Kenya by the end of October. South Africa is also ready. Uganda is ready. Uh, Uganda is ready, Mozambique also they want, they are, they are ready, 
uh, uh, Sierra Leone also. A number of countries are now ready to undertake the second review. So it shows you that, uh, that the APRM movement is growing. But we want also those that have been members for some years, we have not uh, uh, undertaken reviews, we are reaching out to them. So we want to make sure that as, as soon as possible all our member states have had the full APRM experience. The African Union's partner countries say they are keen to assist the current revitalization of the review process to make more countries accountable. Fati Ulusoy is the Turkish permanent representative to the African Union. Now they have certain plans and they are approaching different countries in Africa uh, about uh, their review and they are supporting those countries. Uh, for us, we would like to see uh, the number of APRM members uh, increased. So we uh, fully encourage uh, 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 universal uh, membership from the African continent. Pierre Fruling is a councillor at the Swedish Embassy in Ethiopia. We really hope that the revitalization of the APRM mechanism, together with other mechanisms uh, and structures uh, and efforts within the African Union and together with the member states, will have uh, success in the future. That is really a great hope. Namibia is the latest country to subscribe to the African peer review mechanism. The African peer review mechanism now has 36 member states who have reportedly honored their financial expectations. As such, the mechanism says non-African parties will only need to offer non-financial support to effect the process. Koleta Wanjohi in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Koleta Wanjohi, Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Governments of South Africa and Namibia are consolidating efforts to ensure that both co- countries cooperate in initiatives to secure energy security. President Jacob Zuma will today host his Namibian counterpart, President Haig Gengo, Bob's Namibia, with both leaders will chair where both leaders will chair the second session of the South Africa-Namibia Binational Commission. The one-day meeting will, among others, discuss measures to strengthen trade and investment ties in the fields of transport, health, education, science and technology, agriculture, immigration and energy. Tsepo Ganing has more. The main objective of the South Africa-Namibia Binational Commission is to coordinate and facilitate bilateral cooperation between the two neighboring countries. South Africa is the source of 66% of Namibia's imports and is responsible for approximately 80% of investments in key industries such as mining, retail, banking, agriculture and insurance. On the other hand, Namibia's main exports to South Africa include beverages, livestock, meat products, fish and minerals. Like South Africa, Namibia is faced with massive energy supply constraints 
which often deters foreign direct investment. Netumbo Nandi Daitua is Namibian Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of International Relations and Cooperation. Energy is very critical for development. We could not, we will not be able to move if we don't have the necessary energy. In this regard, the government of Namibia is committed to ensure that work on good gas project commenced. Namibia also wishes to reiterate its readiness to work together with SADC and the AU member states on the Grand Inga project. Comrade Minister, in the area of human resource development, I wish to state that Namibia is pleased at the level of cooperation between our two countries. Many Namibians are receiving their training at South African universities and other institutions of high learning. Our people, especially the youth, are our most precious resources, and we need to do more in order to empower them, because investing in the, in the youth we are investing in sustainable development for prosperity. Her South African counterpart, International Relations and Cooperation Minister Maitengwa Namashabane, said both South Africa and Namibia could benefit immensely from increased investment in the tourism sector. We need to join hands in order to improve our offering to the market and draw increasing numbers of tourists uh, that will result in increasing job creation, poverty, eradication, and also closing the gap between the rich and the poor in both our countries. It is further important that we embrace the digital age and to develop our ICT platforms that offers the opportunity to catapult our economic cooperation into a top gear. According to last year's trade figures, imports from Namibia were valued at over 6 billion rand, whilst exports to Namibia are estimated as close to 52 billion rand. Tsepoikaneng, Pretoria. Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe says his government will amend its indigenization laws this year, a move widely interpreted as a softening of his hardline stance on local black ownership of businesses. During the official opening of the fourth session of the eighth parliament in the capital today, President Mugabe said the coming year the bill on cybercrime will also be tabled. Critics say the controversial bill will allow the state to target anti-government social media movements. Traditionally, the opening of Parliament is a grand affair. President Mugabe, accompanied by his wife Grace, arrives in a vintage Rolls Royce, surrounded by the presidential guard on horseback. Then, a fly past and the inspection of the guard. This time, before he read his speech, President Mugabe ensured that it was the correct one, following last year's gaffe where he read the wrong speech. In the coming year, Parliament is to amend the indigenization law. Earlier this year, President Mugabe said the contradictory statements among his ministers was undermining market confidence. The amendments are likely to lessen demands on the financial services sector. It will be recalled that 
I issued a statement to clarify government's position regarding the indigenization and economic empowerment policy. The relevant act will thus be amended to bring into consonance with to bring it into consonance with the enunciated policy position. The law requires foreign-owned companies to cede a majority of shares to local blacks. It's been blamed for scaring away foreign investment. This year, government will also push ahead with plans to introduce a computer and cybercrimes bill. Government says the bill will curb cyberterrorism, while the opposition believes it will enable government to spy on its opponents. The opening of Parliament was marred by claims that several opposition members received death threats via text message. Movement for Democratic Change Vice President Nelson Chamisa. Uh, this is one of the few countries where you have a, a banana republic kind of approach to the treatment of members of parliament. Members of parliament are threatened with death. Members of parliament are threatened with uh, disappearances. Uh, they are threatened with eavesdropping. Uh, clearly by people whom we know uh, can actually be traced because, you know, in terms of our laws, uh, they can actually tell the service providers who are doing that, who are providing um, platforms for such uh, malcontents and for such criminal elements in our society. The opposition says it's not the first time this has happened. Last year, it says several of its members received threats against heckling President Mugabe in the opening of parliament. ZANU-PF has denied that it was involved in those threats. I'm Shingai Nyoka in Harare. The authorities in Sudan have vehemently dismissed as untrue accusations made by the London-based human rights organization Amnesty International that the Khartoum government has prevented international aid organizations from entering places where thousands of people are in dire need of humanitarian assistance. James Shimanula has more. The government of Sudan, through official spokesman for President Omar Hassan Ahmed el-Bashir, says... It has not blocked staffers of international aid organizations from entering areas inhabited by thousands of people in need of food in the troubled and disputed South Kordofani region. One part of the region is controlled by rebels of Sudan People's Liberation Army North, while the other is under the control of the Khartoum government troops. For over five years, Khartoum jet fighters have made frequent flyovers in South Kordofan, dropping bombs targeting civilian populated areas. The air-to-ground military action has forced nearly half a million people of Kordofan to live in fear, with nearly half of them living in caves. Earlier this week, Amnesty International, the London-based human rights organization, claimed that Khartoum authorities have prevented the international aid agencies from reaching people needing assistance. To get the Khartoum government reaction, I spoke by telephone to President El-Bashir's spokesman, Rabi Abdelati, who vehemently denied Amnesty International claim, but in a nitty-gritty answer, Abdelati had this to say, which implied that his government allows international aid agencies to enter the world's threatened Kordofan region. Yes, no problem, no problem. For the organizations that want to assist, you know, they can come through the Sudan and they can provide aid to some Kordofan areas affected by war. Amnesty International, the London-based human rights organization 
is claiming that Khartoum is preventing international aid agencies from crossing into areas where civilians are in dire need of food and other essential commodities. How do you react to that? No, 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 no. Surely, you know, our president already announced for ceasefire. Now there is a, a will of our government to go through and to implement all what mentioned in the roadmap. President Omar Hassan el-Bashir is a spokesman. Rabi Abdullahi also denied that his government's military jet fighters have been bombing South Kordofan. The Khartoum government's denial, as has been said at the outset, comes at a time when international aid agencies have been restricted to enter the troubled South Kordofan region. To affirm that indeed South Kordofan is a restricted area to aid agencies, let's hear what Amnesty International researcher for Sudan Priscilla Nyagoa Tut says about the restriction. Since 2011, the government has restricted the, the kind of access people can get into South Kudufan. Certainly, the government has restricted access to most areas, to most SPLM north-controlled areas of South Kudufan. What message do you have for the people of Kudufan? To the people of South Kudufan, we urge them to remain strong. As the message from Amnesty International researcher Priscilla Nyagoa to the people of South Korodofan in Sudan to remain strong sinks into thousands of desperate South Korodofani residents. Time will tell whether or not they will endure the strength of being strong while Khartoum jet fighters continue to fly over their caves and rural homes to drop bombs. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. The prosecutor of the International Criminal Court says it would be sad to see Africa pull out of the body. South Africa's outgoing public protector, Tuli Matonzela, to provide President Jacob Zuma with a set of questions to answer following her investigation into so-called state capture by the wealthy Gupta family. And more than 3 million people on the U.S. South Coast are to be evacuated as Hurricane Matthew slams into Florida. I'll have details on these and other stories at the top of the hour. Thank you, Amanda. The 656-kilometer railway from Ethiopia to Djibouti has officially begun operation. An inauguration ceremony held at the main headquarters of the railway in Addis Ababa has set off this railway that will be fully electric. Kweleta Wanjohi has more. The Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Haile Mariam Desalen, the President of Djibouti, Ismail Omar Gwele, and the president of Togo, Faura Nasibe, witnessed the official inauguration of the Ethiopia Djibouti Railway at its main station in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Goods and people can now move from Addis Ababa to Djibouti by rail, and instead of the three days on road, the trip will be as short as 10 hours twice a day. 
Ethiopia Haile Mariam Desalen says that this is a big achievement for both Ethiopia and Djibouti. I think it is uh, a gift uh, to the people of uh, Ethiopia and, uh, and Djibouti uh, for uh, cementing a strong re- friendship and relationship between uh, our peoples. So we thank uh, the people and government of China for this, uh, both uh, in terms of the modern technology acquisition and uh, uh, technology transfer to, to our countries. And, uh, we are also very glad that this is the first in Africa uh, which has happened today. Uh, we are lucky in this regard. And we want to continue with this kind of cooperation in uh, uh, production capacity development and industrialization of our two countries. President Ismail Gwele of Djibouti says that this modern transport link that carries 3,500 tons per trip is the beginning of many more joint projects between the two countries. Too often we hear that African countries must bridge the gap for infrastructure. And too often we are told why it cannot be done. However, I can say without a doubt that our partner in this endeavor and in many others, the People's Republic of China has stood by us and has been instrumental in making the structural transformation of Africa possible. China has funded 70% of the $3.7 billion cost of the project and 30% was funded by the Ethiopian government. It has successfully constructed the railway and says the two countries should make use of the existing China consortium to develop economy along the railway. One of Ethiopia's main hydropower plant called Gibe 3 has been dedicated to this fully electric railway to ensure no interruption of supply. The first three to six months of operation will be used as a test period. This project is not only about economic benefits for Ethiopia and Djibouti, but it is also a proof that integration is key amongst African countries if such mega projects are to be implemented in the continent. Kuleto Anjohi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Malawi and Mozambique have intensified an agreement to interconnect their electricity power networks so that the two countries are connected to the Southern African Power Pool SAP. This comes hot on the heels of continued power blackouts in Malawi. The power blackouts have caused havoc on both private and public sectors, including households. George Mango reports from Lilongwe. Malawi authorities say feasibility and environmental and social impact assessment studies are in progress. They add that such studies will be completed by May 2017. The activist timelines indicate that the interconnector project will be completed by 2019. Through this line, Malawi will be able to trade a minimum of 50 megawatts. The design of this line is to the maximum line capacity of 250 to 350 megawatts. Currently, a request has been sent out to the World Bank to extend the studies to the short extension in Zambia between Chipata and Mchinji. Last year, Malawi requested Zambia to share her power so as to contain persistent power blackouts. But what is the current situation on the ground? This is the question that I did put to one of the Lilongo City residents. Uh, this blackout thing which is happening in Malawi... It's just like uh, a mess to the country because uh, we are failing to cope up. Even if uh, we are failing even to buy food, to buy uh, 
because everywhere you don't find even bread, you don't have even bread in the locations, whatever, failing to iron the clothes. If electricity is blocked out from uh, 6 o'clock in the morning, they come at 12 o'clock in the, at the night. So you cannot do anything during the night like that. You, you are a married person, as uh, you have told me. What happens mainly when you want to, you know, have fun and then maybe, you know, buy some food stuff in view of these issues of blackouts? We are even failing to, to, to buy some of the things which we, our children enjoy at home. They cannot even watch the cartoon. They cannot even do anything. They're even crying, failing to enjoy themselves. And we are even failing to access maybe to the meat we used to do because we don't have in our local bushes because of electricity. In this case, how do you, I mean, survive? Survival now is becoming hard because it means that you, you, shall, you just go to buy the available things which are not even worth it to. But I'm just appealing to the government that at least they should have pumped no more money to the electricity supply commission of Malawi so that they can upgrade their machines because the machine which they are using now is the same machines we are using in 1970, 1980. So the demand is high. But their supply is low now. That's a problem. It is not helping us. Even if you go to work, the same thing. You find the blackouts. You cannot even do anything. Wherever you go, you find it's a blackout, blackout, blackout. Current state of affairs is that private and public sectors, including organizations, depend on generators, which means they spend a lot on fuel. With charcoal becoming scarce, lives of many residents in towns and cities continue to be engulfed in hard times. Food is being wasted as refrigerators are being rendered useless in the absence of power. Workers fear this will lead to job cuts because most companies are already underproducing against the market demands. But authorities maintain that they have intensified other cross-border imports from neighboring countries. Currently, Malawi and Mozambique are vetting power supply agreements which are expected to be concluded by the end of this month. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Lilongwe. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Mining experts met in Johannesburg yesterday to drive the way forward for the industry and share insights into global commodity market prospects and investment opportunities. South Africa's former finance minister Trevor Manuel pointed out at the conference that foreign direct investment into the country has fallen to a fraction of what it was from being number one in gold in the world to seventh position. To find out more on this, Kumutu Mopulane spoke to Bernard Swanepoel, Joburg Indaba chairperson. This is our fourth edition and it's gone from strength to strength. I think it's the place where we really discuss the issues that we are facing as an industry. Yesterday we touched on a wide range of uh, topics, including some political uh, inputs from the ANC and others. And today we are dealing uh, in what we call face-to-face conversations. We're bringing stakeholders together, community and investors, companies and fund managers, 
and we are putting the issues on the table and let the, the different parties uh, share their views on it. You know, industry has got the potential to continue to be the engine room of our economy. And clearly we are not fulfilling our destiny and our potential. And so I think we should all take stock and say, what is stopping us? Um, and instead of just blaming the government, and clearly there are some significant issues with regards to the leadership and the regulatory environment, but issues like safety and productivity and cost are issues very directly under the influence of the companies and also raising those and asking the CEOs, some 20 or 30 of them that have been on the platform, is what are you doing to fix that? What are you doing to attract new investments into your companies? And we've had a really good conversation on that as well. At the moment, uh, what challenges are there in the mining industry? Top of the list continues to be uh, regulatory certainty or lack thereof. This morning we've had a conversation um, uh, between previous uh, president of the National Union of Mine Workers and uh, Joseph Matundra from AMCU, and clearly we are not even addressing the same topic from the same perspective. The level of mistrust uh, is significant, and as long as we uh, don't uh, share facts, as long as we come from different perspectives without even agreeing on the facts facing the industry, we've got a long way to travel. And those are the issues we are trying to uh, at least make some progress on. In the afternoon, we uh, are talking about the uh, energy aspect of our industry and what to be done in terms of new sources of energy. We're also talking about innovation and new technologies. And in, uh, right to the end of uh, the present of today, we have got some uh, companies uh, presenting typical investment opportunities into the junior sector, something which has always been near and dear to our hearts as the Joburg in Daba. Bernard, what are your thoughts on the nationalization of mines? We know that uh, Matunja also spoke on that, uh, saying that he thinks that a portion of mines should be nationalized. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, obviously uh, that has not worked anywhere in the world. Uh, it's not working particularly well in South Africa where state-owned enterprises are being held up as uh, examples of mismanagement and incorrect allocation of capital. And I must say, Mr. Matundra was uh, not arguing for uh, nationalization. He was much more arguing for mines which may no longer make sense to be run by the private sector should perhaps be taken over by the state. So it was definitely not a call for blanket uh, nationalization but obviously, as a unionist, he would want jobs to exist forever, and therefore he feels that some mines should end up in the hands of the government. Illegal mining has also been a bone of contention in the past few weeks, as we saw uh, in some mines around Johannesburg where uh, you know, illegal miners had died. Is this something that the Indaba is also looking at? No, we are not uh, getting to the topic of the uh, so-called illegal miners. Often those are abandoned uh, mines um, and the corporate entities that are involved here are typically not involved. Um, Some of the mines have got a problem with uh, illegal miners, but uh, none of the mines here have got any uh, linkages to the long laughter and other incidents which are currently making the headlines. The DMR uh, hasn't participated at that level uh, in this conversation. And clearly, um, you know, the police and other people involved there are not part of our conversation.
We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Culture and Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi, informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehoku. Thanks, Balungile. Africa has lost more than 3 billion US dollars of tax income through smuggling, terrorism and corruption since 2014. This was revealed by the head of multilateral and international tax at the African Tax Administration Forum, Tulani Shongwe, during the ATAF conference currently underway in Durban, South Africa. He says security programs must be intensified to curb the loss of tax income due to smuggling and corruption. OPEC could cut production at its late November meeting in Vienna by another 1% more than the amount agreed in Algiers last month if producers reckon it is needed. OPEC and non-OPEC members will hold an informal meeting in Istanbul from October the 8th to the 13th to, to discuss how to implement the Algiers deal. OPEC producers agreed in Algiers in September to reduce output by around 700,000 barrels per day. The first shipment of Namibian meat has been exported to Hong Kong market, although exports to China have been halted after lumpy skin disease was identified on a few Namibian farms. The Ghana Bank of the Year, Fidelity Bank, has organized a customer appreciation dinner for its customers at the Kamsinki Hotel in the capital Accra. At the special ceremony to celebrate its customers, Group CEO Edward Effer recounted how far the bank has come since its inception 10 years ago and thanked its customers for believing in the bank. 
Nigeria's economy is likely to shrink 1.3% in 2016, as the Nigerian Bureau of Statistics had predicted the Nigerian economy to grow 3.8% in 2016. A contraction in 2016 would mark Nigeria's first year of recession in 25 years. Stanbic Bank Zambia has lent AVEC International 20 million US dollars to construct a shopping mall in Kitwe to be named after President Edgar Lungu. Speaking during a client cocktail organized to announce the deal with the Chinese company, Stanbic Chief Executive Officer Charles Mudiwa said the credit to construct the Edgar Chakwa Lungu Mall at Freedom Park in Kitwe was in line with the bank's focus on extending lending to the building of shopping malls. Indicators at the Sawa on Channel Africa. We are the voice of the African Renaissance. The US dollar trades at 13.76 to the South African Rand, 10.32 in Botswana, 9.83 in Zambia, 7.8 to the British Pound, 8.9 Euro. Gold, $1265, Platinum, $974 an ounce. Brand crude, $49, 26 cents a barrel. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi, informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, we begin with rugby news. Springbok coach Alistair Kutsia says his team has taken no regard of the criticism and negative sentiments around them and the fact that they have been written off ahead of the Castle Lager Rugby Championship test against New Zealand in Devon on Saturday. Kutsia says his players find motivation from within the team and they are fully aware of the magnitude of the task. Look, uh, we're playing against... Uh world's best team, number one team without a doubt. They've had uh, the most continuity in coaching structures and players. Like I said previously, it's just a, have great systems. But uh, our motivation, our, our motivations come from within and not external, where people write us off and think we want to show them and prove other people, no, no, that's not our Springbok operate. We understand the tradition you know, between the rivalry of the All Blacks in South Africa. And they have players gone before us, and, uh, and if you hear what, how the 
respect that the All Blacks have for the Springboks and vice versa, then you'd understand we will be up for this game. It is uh, great to be able to compete against the, the world's best team and uh, also compete against individually against a world-class player right opposite to you. For us, yes, like I said earlier on, the game plan might not be uh, completed or the finished act at the end of 2016, but it's work in progress. Um, I'm looking, you know, from this team to go out and, and perform. And, and uh, we, we've spoken about it. We've spoken about our whys. We've spoken about the, the magnitude of playing All Blacks in South Africa and away. And, and really excited about it. Springbok captain Adrian Strauss will be playing his last game for the national side on home soil before he hangs his boots from international rugby at the end of the year. And Kutsia says the team won't allow sentiment to get in the way of their job. All Kutsia wants from Strauss is to replicate his man of the match performance from last weekend and continue to be the mainstay amongst the forwards and getting them dominance in the scrum and line outs. Yeah, look, uh, we won't allow emotions to come into this one. Uh, I think Adrian um, understands uh, his job and his responsibility Saturday. Not looking uh, anything than another good performance like, he's, like he put up last weekend against the Aussies. He was really outstanding. And uh, he's a guy that is really responsible for the great set piece that we're really experiencing this year. On to football news, Ghana captain Asamoa Gyan is anxious to end the poor run against Uganda when the two countries meet in the Group E's first 2018 World Cup in Tamale, West of Africa, this afternoon. Although Ghana have beaten Uganda six times, lost three and drawn as many, the Black Stars have struggled against the Cranes in the last decade or so. Since 2002, Uganda have triumphed over Ghana twice in the Nations Cup qualifiers, with the Cranes drawing on two occasions in the same competition. Ghana's only competitive victory in the same period came at home in the 2006 World Cup qualifiers, with a tie in Kampala ending one all. Gyan's coach in Ghana, Avram Grant, admits Egypt, Congo Brazzaville and Uganda hardly make their World Cup ambitions an easy task, but is confident of victory today. FIFA President Gianni Infantino vowed that the 2026 World Cup bidding process will be free of the controversy that surrounded the selection of Russia as 2018 host and Qatar in 2022. Infantino was responding to a recent claim by U.S. President Barack Obama that decisions on who hosts the Olympics and World Cup are corrupt. In the wake of corruption scandals involving FIFA since May last year, there had been calls for revolts or overall cancellation of the 2018 World Cup in Russia and the 2022 in Qatar. Infantino says for 2026 they would have to make sure that the technical report means something concrete and that is not only a political vote. Finally with golf news, Alan Noren leads the Alfred Dunhill Links Championship after a superb course record equaling 64 at Carnoustie. The Swedes won clear of Ross Fisher in second. Nick Dye reports. Carnoustie is regarded as the toughest of the three courses played in the Pro-Am style event, and yet Norrand made things look easy, putting superbly. He reckons he's never bettered a 71 at the course before, but now the man who won the Scottish Open earlier this season is well on track for a further victory with the arguably easier courses to come. 
Fisher made a 66 at King's Barnes. Raphael Jacquelin and Callum Shinquin have battled to 67s at St Andrews in cold and windy conditions. Thomas Peters and Rafa Cabrera Bayo are the best of those returning from the Ryder Cup, both on two under par, while Ian Botham and Damon Hill are among the front runners in the team element of the event. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Chima music featuring Brian Temba with a song titled Never Thought takes us to the top of the hour. <laughs> 